morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, June 22nd, we're studying Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. In today's text, John hears the hallelujah chorus ring out in heaven at the marriage feast of the Lamb. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Sean Smith. Pastor Smith serves at Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mason City, Iowa. Pastor Smith, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Always a great pleasure to be here with you, Tim. So we get started today, Pastor Smith, talk to us in general about the book of Revelation. How do we need to approach this book as Christians? Why, it is, a, why is it a helpful and useful book to us? Well, you know, uh, and, and this has been covered by several of your guests and set up really well, especially right at the beginning of the, the outset of this series here, that, uh, you know, the book of Revelation, we call it apocalyptic literature. And, uh, you know, so, sometimes we just equate with, you know, Apocalypse means the end of the world, and in some ways, it's easy to understand why that is, because what is revealed here is, in a sense, what what will be, what is, in fact, and and that's been emphasized before. But but also, we want to re-emphasize that uh, apocalypse just m- simply means to to pull back and, and show or to reveal, and uh, it's revealing uh, things from God's perspective in heaven, and sometimes. You know, and, and I want to emphasize that because sometimes we look at it as just simply uh, someone like John, who writes, of course, uh, Revelation here, that he gets a vision of heaven. And, and that's indeed true. Uh, we see this also with Daniel in the Old Testament as well, right, that he gets this vision. But it's really a vision to reveal what God is seeing from heaven of what is, what will be, what has been, all of those things coming together in this revelation. And so... When we have this uh, revelation, this apocalyptic literature, right, um, this gives us the perspective to see what God is doing in the present time in light of what is to come. I, I, I think, you know, I, I don't, maybe it was Dr. Louis Brighton who I had the benefit of growing up with uh, in St. Louis and hearing him teach on this uh, several times and, of course, uh, had just retired but was still teaching when you and I were in seminary, uh, Pastor Apple. But, uh, I think I think I get this from him. It could be from someone else, but he he basically would say, you know, that the present can be viewed by the final outcome, right? And and that gives us a great perspective for our life in this world now. And that's especially when you consider the context of Revelation again. John is writing. Um, I, I forget what Dr. Lessing uh, referenced. What, what did he call like uh, resistance literature? I think he called I think this so. or guerrilla yeah. literature, even. Yeah, something like that. Uh, you know, so it's it's using symbolism and all those sorts of things. And of course, they're trying to describe what is hard to describe when you get that vision of heaven and God's perspective on the on the world and time and things like that. But uh, he's writing, you know, to Christians who are under persecution, very heavy persecution. And, uh, and, and again, when you have this understanding of what the revelation is and the perspective of this is how God sees it, 
Well, that gives us a perspective to see our present trials, our present struggles, um, and, and everything that's going on in the world with the view of that final outcome. Uh, you, you and I were talking just before the show, uh, before we started recording here, that, uh, um, you know, the, the constant theme that ke- keeps coming up with several of your guests is Jesus wins, right? That's the final outcome. And knowing that, that gives me a great perspective um, to, to see how I view my life uh, now, whether that be in present struggles or whatever else. But I think, I think in some senses we can, as present-day Christians, connect with those first Christians receiving this because we see that it looks like, at least here in, in, Western, in the Western world and Western Christianity, that Jesus and the Christian church is not winning, right? We're, we're all seeing the decline in numbers, everything all around, uh, just the, 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 the rampant immorality that seems to be increasing in our culture and, and even in our churches. And, uh, you know, you kind of get that image of the Horror of Babylon and things like that, uh, um, you know, in chapter 18, setting this up and so forth. Um, and, and, you know, we kind of see that we live that and, and it can be very easy. And I think a mark of our time is there's a lot of discouragement among Christians because it looks like Jesus isn't winning. It looks like the church is not winning, but the revelation is very helpful to help us see Jesus does win. That's the final outcome. And that completely changes the way that we view it. And especially as we get into 19 here, that then we're going to see the rejoicing of Christians like the first Christians who went and even faced martyrdom and everything else, singing hallelujahs, singing the hallelujah chorus that we're going to see here in chapter 19 and things like that as well. So talk to us a little bit more about any context from the preceding chapters. We we saw in 17 the great prostitute Babylon come on the scene and all of her seductions leading men astray. Chapter 18 described her downfall, fallen, fallen, as Babylon the Great. Any context within there that is especially helpful for what we're reading in chapter 19? Yeah, I mean, so the chapter 19 begins with the words, after this. And the, and the natural question is then, after what? And especially if you're just tuning in, you know, like say one of your, you're one of my members uh, here at Bethlehem that, uh, you know, though I have often lauded your show and encouraged my people to listen, right? They may not have tuned in until their own pastor uh, actually showed up on your show here. And it's been a while since I served in parish. Yeah, there we go. Right. So we'll, we'll get those viewer or those uh, listener uh, numbers <laughs> up a little bit. But, uh, you know, or, or just, just in general, right? You know, as we kind of jump into this, it begins with after this. Well, it's after what you just described, right? We, we see. Uh, Babylon has fallen, right? The great, the the great harlot, the um, you know this image that is used. I mean, the Tower of Babel is in Babylon. It's it's that you know image that shows up right away in the beginning of the book, right uh, in Genesis, and uh, and we see this kind of Babylon. Of course, there's the exile uh, into Babylon and things like that as well. And and Babylon just kind of keeps coming up as this image of evil and wickedness and power and the rule of the world and things like that. But Babylon has fallen in chapter 18. It has been conquered. It is, uh, you know, Jesus wins again, to use that, that phrase. And, uh, and so then you're going to see this rejoicing that comes from the victory. And, and, and again, probably more of, because wars in our day and age and things like that, they just seem to go on forever and ever and never really end. Like, you know, we we declared an end to the conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan and things like that. But like, it also feels like it's still going on, right? Um, and uh, you know, and those sorts of things. But 
So if we can have in our minds, you know, like there's a definitive end, there is a victory and probably like World War II is the last time that we really saw this, right? You know, that you have the victory parades and, yeah. and all of those sorts of things. And certainly in the ancient culture, these were big deals. I mean, your soldiers came marching in. And, and so that's what we're going to see unfolding here in 19 is, is the victory parade, if you will, um, flowing forth from the victory over Babylon, over sin, wickedness and evil and, and the triumph of Christ. The finality of the victory over Babylon was really emphasized there at the end of chapter 18, as the ESV gives the chorus of these things will happen no more, no more, no more, all these sounds of joy will be in Babylon, or never again. So the finality's there, and the Lord had called upon his people to rejoice over this. And so we're going to see that rejoicing here in chapter 19. Before I read it, Pastor Smith, just one one question, which is, is slightly tongue-in-cheek, but it is one that I, I get asked, and I imagine you might have as well. I'm curious how, how you answer this. We're going to hear in this text the Hallelujah Chorus, particularly if you're familiar with Handel's Messiah, that's where it's coming from. So this is the question. What's the difference between Hallelujah and Alleluia? Oh, <laughs> uh, well... Uh, the difference is Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, right? There you uh, go. So, okay. yeah, I mean, just making and, sure there wasn't another answer out there that I was missing, because that's what I say too. Yeah, and and so uh, you know, the I I'm pr- probably more uh, Hebraic, uh, and uh, you and I had a, a common Hebrew teacher, uh, and that was definitely stronger for me in undergrad than than Greek initially, and so. I, I kind of lean towards that, but I also lived with the TLH for a good number of years, where and the old King James, where you get that that H Hallelujah. Um, but uh, you know, all, all are valid and so forth. But I do want to emphasize that the the Hallelujah, the Hebrew, you know, which is the original, you know, too as well, and that's probably why I also favor it. Um, the others are just trying to mimic it. Is uh, you know, it's just a praise Yah, you know, the, which is an abbreviation for Yahweh. So you know, praise the Lord. We can even say. Um, and, uh, and it's important to kind of have that in our minds as, as that's what we're saying with hallelujah. Uh, thank you for redeeming that question by telling us what hallelujah actually means. Yes, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. That is the, the word that we hear in Revelation 19. It is a word that is used throughout the Old Testament, although it's often simply translated in the Psalms, praise the Lord. But that is the word that we hear over and over again in this section of 19. Here is the text. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. 
Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is our text for today. That is Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. All right, so Pastor Smith, we've already talked a little bit about the word hallelujah, the basic meaning, praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. It shows up several times here. It's a common praise of the Lord in the Old Testament. Give us more significance of, of why that's an appropriate word to use to praise the Lord here in Revelation 19. Yeah, well, I was thinking about this uh, earlier, too, and I'm not really sure how much uh, this, th- this is just, I, I, I want to preface this by saying basically that this is just uh, Sean Smith wondering. I haven't really found too much of this in the, the commentaries, um, but it, it just literally jumped to me as I was making a hospital visit earlier, um, this thought that isn't this kind of interesting that, you know, on Palm Sunday, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, we often picture that, and rightly so, you know, as kind of, you know, his great ancestor, King David, riding in and triumph and victory into the city of Jerusalem and so forth. And yet, what is it that they shout there on Palm Sunday? They shout Hosanna, mm-hmm. right? Which is different and, and means save us. It, it's actually a crying out, you know, take care of this for us, right? You know, like, a, you know, triumph over our enemies. Um and so while I don't want to undo, you know, that uh, uh, that uh, Jesus is is not riding in on triumph on Palm Sunday or anything, he certainly is, right? You know, and in so many of these things, when it comes to scripture, all of these things are kind of wrapped up together and, and you don't really want to pull them apart, apart. But, you know, what you're getting is the shout of Hosanna and as as it is praise to, to Jesus as he comes in, but it's also a cry that he would have a victory. And then here, I think you get this beautiful imagery. And of course, you see palms show up a good bit in uh, Revelation as well. And so I think there's an intentional connection there. Uh, so that definitely shows up in the commentaries of, of seeing that connection there. But here, the hallelujah uh, and this, this you know kind of majestic scene that is presented here in this hallelujah chorus is, if you will, the answer to that Palm Sunday triumph that Jesus rides in on, right? Yeah, you know they're saying, you know, well, well, praise to you for doing what we asked you to do for for triumphing over our enemies. And I think you know the significance here again of of seeing those things two connected together. Then is that uh, um, in a sense, again, these things are all wrapped up together. In a sense, Jesus has triumphed already. He did that in his death and resurrection, right? And so the the enemy is triumphed. And so we sing our alleluias now, right? Right. But it's also going to have this final kind of uh, last day implications where it's brought to its fullness and it'll never return again. And so this is the unending um, hallelujah chorus, if you will, that that goes on uh, ever since Christ's victory on the cross and his resurrection that is going on unending for throughout time. And that's where I think you brought in Handel's Messiah and so forth is really so beautiful because just Alleluia just gets shouted again and again and again in there. And uh, Handel, just a a, a masterful musician and so forth. And just, I mean, the whole Messiah and all, 
all of his uh, works in this sense, uh, you know, especially his scriptural works and so forth, really emphasize these truths such, in such a beautiful way. But especially the Hallelujah chorus, it's 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 beautiful not just because of how it's powerful in terms of its music and its effect on us in that sense, but in also what it's emphasizing for us is this is what we're doing for all eternity here and now uh, in in light of Christ's victory and what we will be doing in heaven for all eternity as well. I like the the connection with the word Hosanna on Palm Sunday that starts Holy Week, then by Easter you're saying Alleluia, and that's even the way that it works within the life of the Church. And so it is good and right for us to use both of those words in our own prayers, because on the one hand, we are living in this world, and our Lord Jesus has not yet returned, and so we do need to continue to cry out, Hosanna, save us, Lord. And then as he does, in anticipation of that final day when the victory is made evident for all to see, we do already sing our Alleluias. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's very much like the the praising of Israel that happens after they've crossed the Red Sea. That's the praising that, that we do now already in anticipation of that victory. So hallelujah, over and over again here in this chapter, cried out by a multitude of voices. There's a number of, of voices. Some of them are, are not quite as identified. We hear about the elders speaking this, the living creatures. Sometimes it's just a large multitude. Who are we hearing in this text singing hallelujah? Yeah, well, and... And so I mentioned that I was having that thought of the connection of Palm Sunday and Hosanna, uh, and then also uh, as I was going to do a hospital visit earlier. And it was because, you know, in the hospital visit, we were we were going to share our hallelujahs uh, because my parishioner just a few days ago, we thought was ready. He was on his way to go see Jesus. We literally thought that, um, you know, it, it was looking that way in terms of his health and so forth. But then by the blessing of God, he's he's doing well. And so while we cried out a few days ago, Hosanna, right? Uh, uh, we're, we're shouting our alleluias. And we would shout our alleluias even if he were to go be with Christ because of that victory that we have, right? Um, and so uh, I, I want to emphasize, you know, kind of at the outset here that we are getting this image of these, these creatures in heaven, but we join in with that, right? And this is a, a thing that I want to continue to emphasize as we go along here of uh, this is the nature of what goes on in the church is that we sometimes just think about the church in terms of our local congregation or maybe our synod or our church body or, you know, those sorts of things, what we see here on earth, basically, right? Uh, maybe we'll even think, you know, ecumenically, uh, how dare we, you know, but uh, we, we may just think about the churches here on earth, right? Um, but uh, uh, really, the church is joined together already now for eternity with what is going on in heaven. And so, of course, we, the saints here on earth, are shouting our hallelujahs, not just for temporal relief, uh, as it was for my parishioner and so forth, but we're joining these, these creatures in heaven, uh, the elders, um, the martyrs and saints. I mean, all of this is kind of the imagery working on there um, that, uh, you, know, uh, you know, what I think is beautifully summarized in the preface of our liturgy, uh, what comes right before Holy Communion, where we, we, we really do confess this is where heaven and earth come together in just a beautiful moment. The, the walls fade around, away from around us, and, and it's literally, as Dr. R. Just emphasizes and wrote a book uh, with this title, you know, it's heaven on earth, 
right? In that moment. And that preface concludes with angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. We laud and magnify thy glorious name. Everyone we're praising you and saying, right? And then we join in that heavenly chorus uh, uh, that are singing the Alleluia's or the holy, holy, holy in that uh, particular case in the terms of our liturgy, which we also see here present as well and uh, in Revelation and also Isaiah. And That's so, right. right, so we uh, we get this, you know, this image of what what's what's being represented here i mean we can get into the symbolism of exactly you know how we see this represented in these beings and those sorts of things uh i i personally i don't find too much benefit in that uh especially for uh, for the sake of an hour-long show here and so forth uh that uh, i think we can just summarize it this is a picture of the church right it is those angels archangels the whole company of heaven all the saints and martyrs and the saints here on earth joining together in this unending praise of the Lamb who's reigning on his throne to draw that imagery from Revelation 7 that we've had already, um, but also singing this Alleluia chorus, the victory. We're joining in the parade, right? We're singing we're singing the shouts of victory um, as, as we join together in this. Now, we hear the word Hallelujah again over and over again, and we've already referenced Handel's Messiah, and that really comes into view with verse 6. But we hear Hallelujah three times before we even get to that verse. And perhaps the words that are sung with the Hallelujahs in the first four verses are a little surprising to us, because they speak of, well, it's not also maybe happy, it would seem. I mean, we're, we're praising God here for judging the great prostitute, for avenging the blood of his servants. We're praising God for the smoke from this great prostitute going up forever and ever. I mean, we're very clearly talking about God has defeated our enemies and they're done for. Why is that an appropriate part of our praise in the church? Because I think sometimes we forget that it is, that we kind of focus on verses, you know, six and following, but we would leave out this part. Why is this an important part of the praise, the hallelujah offered to the Lord? Well, because that's the victory, right? I mean, and you know, to to put it quite bluntly, right? When we triumph over our enemies temporarily here, right? Um, there's a way in which, um, you know, obviously we we should pray for repentance and salvation for all people, and we're called to love our enemies and all of those sorts of things. That's You've done other shows and studies on that kind of idea and so forth, and so we certainly let that stand on its own. Uh, so we preface it with this. But yet at the same time, when we see on the news, right, or whatever, the smoke rising up from, you know, uh, well, you know, you, you see the pictures and images, uh, you know, after we captured Osama bin Laden, who had attacked us or orchestrated the attacks at 9-11 and so forth, right? And, and in our minds was the smoke rising up from the towers and the Pentagon and things like that as we had been attacked. And then as we see, you know, that we had triumphed over it, right? We had victory over him. Like, what what happened? People went out in the streets and they were celebrating this victory, right? And so not to discount the fact that, again, we desire repentance and to love our enemies and we don't desire war and all those sorts of things and so forth right? There is no sense of that victory unless you see the signs of that victory. And, uh, and this is righteous, right? You know, the evil and wickedness, the, the harlot, um, you know, these, these things are the offense against God and his goodness that he created the world and for us to live in. And so we, we should be rightly rejoicing at seeing it laid waste, never to, de- never 
never to uh, to afflict us again, never to cause us trouble again. And so, yeah, very simply, it's it's the sign of our victory, and we know that it is sure. Yeah, that's right. And it's something that I, I think is it's there in our hymnody and in certain places. Again, times around Easter come to mind that that speak about the defeat of Satan and death and sin. And and we should rejoice over those victories because without them, we're lost. And that's I think one of the important things to keep in mind from the preceding pictures in chapters 17 and 18, just how wicked this anti-church is, just how wicked and and evil and despicable and how immoral all these enemies of, of Christ and his church actually are, to see their defeat, while it doesn't bring us joy to see people joined to that, we, we certainly, as you said, pray for repentance, to see the defeat of evil and God bring about his justice and his righteousness, this is what we pray for when we pray, come Lord Jesus, when we ask for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. This is this is the answer to our prayers. In fact, you could even, just thinking now in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6, where the saints under the altar are crying out, how long, O Lord? Here's the answer. And so the praises must ring out. And again, while we continue to pray for the repentance of, of those who would join themselves to such evil, we shouldn't shy away from rejoicing over the victory that God has won over that evil. Yeah, and and we certainly we certainly desire it, right? I mean, like we think of this, you know, even just to a simple lowly experience, right? Of like a bully that's like we kind of like it when he gets handed it to him, right? You know, like you know, we again we we would wish that he would not be that way, <laughs> but yes. uh, when he gets put in his place, right? And and then also too here, I want to emphasize that as we sing this. Um, Alleluia here, and uh, notice here that it is that he has done this, right? Uh, they, they are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute, right? This is, this is affected already. And, uh, and so, again, we want to have that perspective to see that Jesus has already done this, has already triumphed over the harlot of Babylon, the, the, the evil and wickedness, right? Because uh, that gives us, again, the, the pr- perspective of this world, that when we face this evil and wickedness, when we face persecution and, uh, and the, the rampant immorality that we see in the world around us that so trouble us and so forth, um, it, at least for myself, um, I don't always do it well, and this is why I need to go to a pastor too, and why I need to listen to shows like yours and constantly be reminded of this and be fed in this and God's word and things like that, right? But it's helpful for me when in my mind I, I look at it and I say, you already lost, right? You're, yeah. you're judged, right? And 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 the the thinking that's behind my enemy that's manifest in a person there, right, um, has has already been defeated. So what hope is there to turn that person to repentance then? In the fact that I can in love, right, bear their per, uh, bear the persecution that they may uh, be bringing to me, the hatred that they may be bringing, or whatever else, right and know that the thinking and the power behind that has already lost, and so I can bear it in love and be a witness to the truth of the victory that is already in Christ and his cross here and now. Yeah, it's very, very helpful, Pastor Smith. We're going to take our break right there. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Sean Smith this morning about Revelation 19. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, June 22nd. We're studying Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 to 10 with Pastor Sean Smith. He serves at Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mason City, Iowa. Pastor Smith, prior to the break, we were talking about the Hallelujah Chorus that echoes throughout this part of Revelation 19. In verse 6, John continues to hear the voice of heaven proclaiming this. There's the voice of a great multitude. It's like the roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunders, crying out yet again, hallelujah. And it's within that verse that we get what Handel's Messiah picks up for the hallelujah chorus. And we also pick up there a theme that we see throughout the scriptures, the fact that this is celebrating the marriage of the Lamb. We're looking at a a wedding feast here. So talk to us about this image scripturally and, and how it gets picked up here. Yeah, the the image of marriage uh, in the Bible, and and that being the relationship between God and His people, uh, or uh, we might say in New Testament terms, God and His Church, which is the people of God, of course. Um, this this is something that is very consistent throughout Scripture uh, in the Old Testament, especially. You see this image. Um, uh, you see it presented in Hosea as well, uh, you know, kind of as he's bringing his judgment a- against the people for their unfaithfulness as his bride. Um, but uh, uh, that uh, this this is a marriage that has already happened in the Old Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, it's, it's something that is to come, right? And so sometimes, uh, I think sometimes we only think of this in terms of the New Testament type thinking, where this is this, this is something that will come at the last day. And again, when it comes to the way the scripture works, all of these things are just kind of wrapped up together. And, uh, and so you understand that we are currently the bride of Christ. This is a present reality. Uh, so we have that Old Testament imagery that, that is dominant there. Um, and yet, again, it is brought to its fullness at Christ's glorious return. And so uh, uh, we kind of live in both realms there. But uh, this, is, this is an image that, again, is consistent all the way throughout Scripture. And it's helpful for us to lay out here that, pe- spe- uh, pardon me, the specific imagery uh, that is being used here is the marriage of the Lamb uh, to the church, right? And so uh, we, we or, or the marriage is the Lamb to the bride, sorry. Uh, and so the lamb obviously represents Jesus, and this has been set out earlier in Revelation. This is this is the dominant image of Revelation: is the lamb is Jesus, the victor who's reigning on his throne, the 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 sacrificed lamb, the the fulfillment of the day of atonement, and and all the sacrifices of the Old Testament, and and those sorts of things, right? Uh, and so the lamb is Jesus, obviously, and the bride there is the uh the saints those who um uh well they're they're clothed in the fine linen right uh that is the righteous deeds of the saints it lays out and so that's where we we say we talk about this 
in terms of this is the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church, which, of course, is most evident in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 5, right, that as he talks about husbands and wives and how we are to live in holiness uh, in that relationship, that he says this, is, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying that I'm talking about Christ and his bride, the church, right? And so this is, this is the imagery that is being drawn here together, uh, is that uh, we're, we're, we're shouting hallelujah at the victory that is our bridegroom, right? He's the one that won the victory. And so we're shouting hallelujah. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, I get a sense of this, you know, my wife is, is proud of me when I do something well, or say something well. And, you know, it's, for me, I just don't do those things often enough. But, uh, you know, like the the pride that I see on her face when when she's like, ah, my husband did that, right? Um, you know, this is this is in a much more profound way, much, much more profound way, um, what we see um, in in the the pride and joy, rightful, righteous pride and joy that we have in our perfect bridegroom, Christ, uh, who perfectly cares for the church, has redeemed the church, has saved the church. And so it's right that we beam with pride and, and sing our hallelujahs and, um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, just, just enjoy that uh, and live in that uh, beautiful uh, image that we have. The wedding supper imagery here, I can't help but think of the way Jesus speaks it. It's in Matthew 25, where he tells the parable of the 10 bridesmaids or 10 virgins, five of whom are ready and five of whom are not. And think of the great joy that the five who are ready have when the bridegroom comes and they go and into the wedding hall to well, and I'm just going to do it, to eat the supper at his call. This is where we're singing Wake, Awake, for Night is Flying by Philip Nikolai is, is right here, isn't it? Yeah, well, and that's actually, that was the opening hymn for my marriage uh, to my wife, and and just the joy of seeing her walk in, right, uh, and, and her eyes were locked on me and so forth. Uh, again, this is all echoing uh, what is what is much more beautiful uh, than even our earthly marriage, which of course we value and we treasure. I love my wife, and she loves me, and I'm thankful for that. Um, but uh, the joy that we have of that—that that Christ is our bridegroom, and and the perfectness of that—and and I think here is an uh, t- a helpful place, or maybe to just take a small excursus to to, to sidestep and. And talk about something that I think you probably see in your pastoral ministry or just ministry or, or not even just ministry, but just like life in general, that sometimes, you know, people will talk, I think, well-meaning enough uh, about, you know, like when someone dies and their spouse has gone before them, right? You know, well, they went to be with their their loving husband or loving wife, right? And so forth, right? Like that. Well, I mean, I think we need to first emphasize that, as Jesus himself says, there there is no marriage in heaven in that sense, right? Um, and uh, and and yet we can we can honor that and say, well, that's great that you had you know a wonderful godly marriage. We pray, right, and uh, and that you you long to be with them. But really, what we should be what we should be rejoicing in those moments, right? And, and I know that the Christians especially do is that they get the joy of going to be with their bridegroom, Christ, right? As much joy as we might think about having being reunited with a lost spouse and so forth, how much greater the joy to be united to our eternal spouse, Christ Jesus, the the, the reigning victorious king uh, over all creation, right? I mean, that 
that to me is the much more beautiful image. And at least again, for myself, as I had that image, uh, you know, presented by the, that beautiful hymn uh, at the beginning of my wedding, right? The joy I had at seeing my wife come in there, right? And being united to her in marriage uh, is only a joy because it's living in reflection of that greater marriage, uh, which is Christ Jesus, our Lord, and, and the thankfulness that I have in being united and joined to him eternally through baptism, strengthened in the union that we receive in Holy Communion and things like that, right? Yeah, you, you certainly see already here in chapter 19 that the joy of eternal life is to be united with the Lamb who was slain, who now reigns, who has prepared his church as his holy bride. That's going to become even more prominent later in the book of Revelation, especially when you get to the last couple chapters in the vision of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, that, that what's going to be there, what's going to make it eternal life, it's the fact that that's where the Lamb is, this this one who has bought us as his own, who has clothed us with this fine linen, bright and pure. I think that the language that's used in, in verse 8 is so wonderful, that, that the bride is clothed with this white linen, bright and pure. And it does say that it's the righteous deeds of the saints, which may strike us a little bit unusual, but I think if you keep it in the context of Revelation, it, it makes perfect sense. You go back to chapter 7, you've got the saints in white robes who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and we know from Revelation 14 that their deeds follow them. And so to hear the, those two images combined here it shouldn't shouldn't cause us to doubt that we, we are saved by grace alone. We are. Maybe a good place to think is, is Matthew 25, where Jesus speaks to the sheep, and he, he points out all their works, and they're like, well, well what works, Jesus? But, but he knows them, and he knows them because of their faith. Right, or certainly, you know, again, just broadly, Scripture talks about this all over the place, right? That, you know, we, we know that we don't boast in our works, right, as Ephesians points us to as well, but but yet we do live in them as they were prepared beforehand by Christ Jesus. And so, uh, you know, the... You know, this this is kind of the Lutheran hang-up, right? You know, is but uh, uh, we don't reject good works, right? Uh, uh, but uh, we have them in their right order and right perspective, and they proceed forth from faith. And that's what's being emphasized quite clearly here: is that these these deeds are being done, uh, being performed from faith, right? Something else that I want to emphasize here too, as we talk about this this uh, fine linen, uh, uh, bright and pure and those sorts of things. Uh, you know, I've emphasized a few times that obviously this is uh, most beautifully reflected for us in the divine service, in the liturgy of the church, that place where heaven and earth join together and we're, we're kind of brought into this apocalyptic vision, if you will, um, that uh, that is going on at all times. And 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 so in a sense, you know, we, we should really enjoy being... Uh, in church and just can't get enough of it. I, I know Lutherans sometimes have a hang-up, like we don't like to spend one more minute longer in church than we absolutely need to, right? This is why sermons have to be short and we got to get done within an hour and things like that. But it's really kind of wrong thinking when you think about the image that we get in Revelation of what we're going, like we all want to go to heaven, right? <laughs> and so if you want to go to heaven, it's an eternal worship service. So uh, if that's what you want <laughs> uh, to get to, uh, learn to enjoy it now, and and at least for me, uh, as I started to think about that way, uh, it really brought me to a greater enjoyment. Where I I just to be honest, and maybe it's because I'm a pastor and I'm crazy, I don't know, but uh, 
you know, I really enjoy and lose all track of time in the divine service as we sing these beautiful hymns, as we sing uh, our hallelujahs, and as we enjoy in this. And there's so many other things that we do within our divine service to reflect this reality and to reflect this imagery as well. Um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, probably most people would look at the way I lead the divine service and call that high church liturgy or things like that. I don't, I just call it liturgy myself. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, the reason that I wear some of the garments that I do, right, and that the church historically has made use of is to reflect this beautiful imagery of we're at a wedding, right? I mean, we're we're at a wedding to the most perfect bridegroom of all time, and and we're in the feast and celebration of that. Like you put on nice clothes, and certainly the bride does, right? And uh, and so I, I remember my first congregation. I experienced this. I I put on a, a garment that's called a cope uh, for Easter. And uh, it, you know, it's a big fancy cape, basically, very decorative, very ornate, and everything. And I remember there was this lady that just like was really incensed by it, right? You know, wonderful, beautiful saint. I love her to death. She is with Christ now, and we're rejoicing that. But I remember her just kind of getting a little worked up about it. And she's like, "What are you trying to do? Like, you know, just show off and you know whatever else." And I was like, well, first of all, it's really hot, by the way. So like, you know, um, but I'm wearing this for a purpose. And then a, a little bit later, I was visiting her. I mean, this was literally just a couple weeks afterwards. I was visiting her in her home and I noticed her wedding photo and her husband, uh, also a wonderful dear saint that I had known, had died uh, like a year earlier and so forth. But I commented on, I said, and, and this was true. I said, your wedding dress is just absolutely stunning. I mean, it, it really was, it was like, it was like one of those, like, like she was royalty or something. Um, and she wasn't, she was just a simple saint, but like, she clearly was of that generation, especially. And we still see it today too, where she went all out for this beautiful wedding dress. And, and so I kind of chided her a little bit and I said, what are you trying to do? Show off? You know, like, and she was like, what do you mean? You know, it's a wedding. It's supposed to be beautiful, right? And she knew well enough, you know, she said, you know, our earthly marriages reflect, you know, the marriage to Christ, right? I said, right. And that's what I was trying to do in the liturgy and in the, the service, especially high feast day like Easter. I'm trying to reflect that wedding uh, that we have in our words as well, right? I, I, I love the, the, the third option for the post-communion collect that's in divine service settings one, two, and four. Uh, it doesn't show up in three and uh, five in the Lutheran service book. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it draws on this imagery as well. You know, gracious God, our Heavenly Father, you have given us a foretaste of the feast to come and the Holy Supper of your Son's body and blood. Keep us firm in the true faith throughout our days of pilgrimage, that on the day of his coming we may together with all your saints celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom, which has no end, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. We have words like that, but it's also not just words. It's an actual reality. This is what is going on in the divine service. And so what I'm doing and trying to wear those vestments and make sure that I have good vestments, and I and I actually use a linen robe. I don't know what you use. Um, I, and being here in North Iowa now, I notice it's a lot cooler to wear this than like when I was in Texas uh, or, uh, you know, even Southern Illinois and so forth. Um, you know, the temperature is much more, uh, conducive to these things, but, but, uh, I do, I try and I try to keep that linen robe that I use for my alb, um, 
very clean and white because this is the imagery that the scriptures give us. And we're trying to reflect that and, and what we wear, what we say, what we do, how we act in the divine service, the reverence and all of those sorts of things. We're at a wedding, the, the most awesome, perfect, beautiful wedding of all time. And, uh, and just as appropriate as it would be for a bride to wear an absolutely beautiful, stunning dress, um, how much more should we show that as the bride of Christ in the church? Yeah, I mean, just to, to sum that up with what's there in the text, the words of the angel in verse 9 that he tells John to write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's, that's a beatitude. We are blessed to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as you said, we experience that marriage supper, a foretaste of it already now in the Lord's Supper. Where else are you going to get that on Sunday morning? Nowhere but the divine service. So... Count yourself blessed to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb in his kingdom. The foretaste now, one day the feast that has no end. In verse 10, John responds to this, and, and this is a bit unusual. He falls down at the angel's feet to worship him, and the angel quickly corrects him. Take us into this scene. I don't know why John does this. I'm not sure that the text reveals that he does, but the angel quickly corrects him. Take us into what's happening there in verse 10. Yeah, well, and I actually want to back up. You talked about the blessedness and and so forth. I, I don't want to pass over that uh, without mentioning this as well, that uh, I, I think this highlights the significance of the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? You know, this the the fact that we are blessed, this beatitude, right? You know, that that's an honor. It's a privilege that's not afforded to everyone. And so, you know, we should muster up with all our with all our energy possible the all the reverence and everything else that we could possibly have at being in this awesome, uh, you know, I'll use the term experience, right? You know, that that's just engaging all of the senses and everything else. Uh, and, and this great honor to be this, uh, well, the bride and, 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 you know, being united to Christ. And I think what happens here um, uh, then sets up with what happens with John. And we see this, right, you know, that uh, even as we are given the fourth commandment and that per, uh, extends beyond parents uh, to pastors and also earthly authorities and so forth as well, um, that, uh, you know, we have a right understanding of it. Not too long ago, we had the the coronation of King Charles III, right? And and we should honor him as an earthly authority. And, uh, and I thought it was a beautiful coronation service, which is really a long divine service with, you know, uh, the right of installation of a king <laughs> that, uh, uh, as I saw someone describe it. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, like, but I thought it was a beautiful service that emphasizes this is but a reflection of the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords, who is Jesus Christ, right? And, and that's how we are to rightly understand our earthly authority as well. But we have this con kind of constant temptation that it becomes worship, if you will, of the king himself or of the earthly uh, experience. And, and so, you know, I, I think this temptation is in all of us that when we see something that is just so beautiful and magnificent and powerful and so forth, um, we, we, we tend to, you know, even when we have a right understanding, I believe, you know, John does, you know, it's just like, Oh well, I'm in the presence, so like this is this is who it comes from, right? And so he falls down, and and it's just it's a loving rebuke, I think, from the angel of saying, uh, no, no, I'm just a messenger. <laughs> you know, that's what angel means. I'm just I'm just uh, uh, reflecting to you or revealing to you 
uh, what ultimately comes from Christ. I'm a fellow servant with you, so don't worship me, right? Uh, don't don't honor me. And again, we we have this temptation with our own politics and with our own country and with money and and uh, you know earthly power. And those are all the things that belong to Babylon that has been conquered, right? Uh, and and we rejoice in them being conquered. And so uh, you know don't don't put your attention there. Uh, that's that's kind of going back in the wrong direction. Uh, that that worship and praise belongs only to Christ. And so uh, he's he's the one that uh, uh, the angel points to, as all good angels do, all good messengers do. This is this is what you and I do as pastors and our sermons and our our teaching and being on radio shows like this and everything. Right? We're constantly pointing people to Christ. And while your show is really quite awesome, Pastor Apple, I mean, I just cannot commend it enough. And you are an awesome guy, a good friend that I've known for many years and so forth. Um, you would rightly say, right, um, that I ought not worship you or your show or any good that it does or how um, wonderfully God has blessed you to do what you do so well. Um, you would say, hey, this 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 exists purely to, to point people to Christ, right? Yeah, that's right. God, God be praised is the the appropriate response to to those who would compliment the the pastor sermon. That's that's what he should say. God be praised, or maybe you know this maybe seems like a little a, a sillier example, but I think it I think it works when the three year old comes to you and says, "Hey Jesus," because he's heard you talk about Jesus so many times. That's an opportunity for you to say, "Well, aim higher, kid. <laughs> worship worship Jesus. I am the one that tells you about him, and I'm glad you know that. But make sure you know I'm not Jesus. We worship Jesus together. It's what the angel tells John to do too. Now, what about that that last phrase, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy? How does that fit into what the angel said? Well, I, again, this is, um, you know, the it's, it's drawing from all of the Old Testament. Everything has been pointing to Jesus, right? Um, the, I, you know, the common way that we summarize what Scripture does, Old Testament, New Testament, is, and we'll often do this in our uh, catechesis and so forth, right? We'll draw kind of everything focused on Christ and the cross in the middle and so forth. And so, you know, everything is focused on Christ, and, and that's the testimony that the prophets had in mind. That's the testimony that he, as an angel, messenger of God, uh, has in mind and so forth. And so uh, this this is the, you know, uh, what's the phrase I want to use here? I'm not quite sure. Maybe maybe you can help with this, but uh, you know the spirit of the prophecy, if you will, is well. It's drawing, of course, from the Holy Spirit, who is at work through the Word. Uh, we see that constantly again in John's Gospel, especially. Uh, that's a big emphasis. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, not just spirit in the sense of the Holy Spirit working, because that is certainly true and in focus here. Um, but uh, but ultimately, it's the um, I'm still just struggling to find the, the word. I thought if I talk like prophecy, maybe? right? The essence. That's that. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate your help. Sure. Uh, yeah. So it's it's uh, another way of kind of saying this is this is the FS and essence of what it is all about. Yeah, that's right. It's it's all about Jesus, which is what Jesus taught John in the forty days after he had risen from the dead before he ascended. That the entirety of the scriptures is about his suffering, death, and resurrection for the preaching of repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. So the angel emphasizes that here to John, and that's that fits very well. Worship God. Worship the one who gave you Jesus. That's where your worship belongs. Got about three minutes here, Pastor Smith, reflecting on this part of Revelation nineteen. 
what do we do with this? How do we apply it? What's the great joy that's ours in seeing this glimpse with St. John? Well, I, I think, you know, there are certainly a lot a lot of things that we could continue to emphasize. The depth and richness of Scripture is always wonderful, and so it's great that we can continually go over these things in shows like this and in Bible classes and things like that. But especially what I want to focus on is actually maybe even just picking up on what we were just talking about here. This is the essence. This is the focus. What we want to emphasize is it's all about Jesus, and that's whom we're worshiping. That's who we're shouting our hallelujahs to, and... Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's all focused there. And like we see with John, there's this temptation, you know, not just in terms of politics and government and those sorts of things, as I just talked about, but I think at times we can even do this with the church, right? Is that we get focused on our church that, you know, has been in our family for five generations or whatever else. And it can kind of become an idol of our worship. We're tempted to fall down and worship the church and we get worried, especially in our day and age, again, as we see immorality increasing in our culture and all around us, we, we're prone to get discouraged at that. We see the declining numbers in our church, and what do we got to do to just make, you know, they get people back here in the pews, and and, and a lot of times, if we're honest, and I, I'll just speak for myself, at times the temptation is certainly there for me as well, is that uh, we're, we're too short-focused, Right. And we're just focused on kind of those temporal situations. And I think that John writing this again, bringing it back to how we started, um, two Christians who are persecuted, where it looks like things aren't going well, it looks like Jesus is losing, it looks like um, that Jesus doesn't come, that he just kind of leaves us on our own and that we're struggling here, just scraping to make it by or whatever other feelings that we may have in the church and those sorts of things. Um, we do well, I think, to be focused here on this is the testimony of Jesus, and that's the reason that we have the church, and Christ has won. He is already victorious. He has ascended and reigning on high. He hasn't left us. You know, we, we emphasize that with the ascension. I know you certainly do all the time, um, and, and I do as well, and, and we love bringing those ascension services back to the church and so forth, because... You know, sometimes we think of Jesus kind of in his ascension of saying, well, see you later. You know, you know, I, I gave you what you need. Here's your teaching. Now figure it out and do it on your own. That's not at all what's happening in the ascension, right? Uh, he is reigning active, uh, and he certainly is still active with his Holy Spirit uh, in and through his word and sacrament, the ministry of the church. And, uh, and we're not on our own, and the victory is already his. And the more that we see this apocalyptic vision of that, the more sure and certain we are of that, the more that we live in that. And that's that's the reason to come to church, to to participate in this great feast of victory of our God, right, is, uh, is to be assured of that more and more, which gives us strength, gives us confidence uh, in that true faith uh, until life everlasting when it's brought to its fullness. And so we just can't love uh, the church uh, and the work of the church and everything that points us to Jesus and reassures us of that victory again and again uh, any more than, than we... Yeah, we just can't do it anymore. Yeah, that's right. That's right. God be praised. Pastor Sean Smith is pastor at Bethlehem Evangelical Lutheran Church in Mason City, Iowa. He has been helping us today to study Revelation 19, verses 1 to 10. Pastor Smith, thanks for being our guest today. Always a pleasure, Pastor Apple. 
I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this part of Revelation 19, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.